and welcome back to Monarchast. We are talking things royal. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we are kicking off a brand new set of episodes. We are really excited about these episodes. Uh, not that we're not usually excited about what we're talking about, but I think this topic is a favorite of both of ours. So Claire, you want to kind of let people in on what the theme is going to be this time? Well, we have danced around this a bit, but we are finally going to cover the War of the Roses. Yay! Um, This is going to be part of an overarching theme we're going to do on deposed monarchs. So it's going to be all of the monarchs who've lost their crowns and their heads. Um, But we thought the best place to start with a theme like that would be the War of the Roses because we have several monarchs who lost not only their crowns but also their heads during this turbulent time period in British history. So did they lose their heads? That I didn't know about. Not all of them but they all the ones we're going to talk about died. Okay. (laughs) So it's more of a figurative. A metaphorical head if you will. Yeah yes. Uh, Some of them all of the ones in the Wars of the Roses pretty much died of other causes, although we might we might say Richard III, I believe, did actually lose his head. Um, in a manner well, of speaking. In a manner of speaking. Um, but that's, that's the best place to start because we've got a lot of these guys to cover. So we are going to start um, with Richard III. Second, So we have covered a bit here and there. You know, you may remember in our intro to Henry VIII, we talked about some background. We did an episode on Elizabeth Woodville, who was the queen consort of Edward IV. And um, we touched a little bit on the history of the conflict there. But we're going to dive into the full history and context since a few of the players certainly were deposed and killed. Um, specifically, we're going to cover Richard II, who is a precursor to the War of the Roses, but very relevant. Henry the Sixth, the Princes in the Tower, and Richard III. And those l- last two might be one episode. Um, and also, those are the ones that we should mention. We have danced around a bit before. Mm-hmm. The Princes in the Tower, sons of Elizabeth Woodville, and Richard III, obviously brother of Edward. So yes, um, that was kind of how we talked about the War of the Roses in the past, but not. <laughs> so Yes. Yeah. So we're back in the British Isles. Um, we're going to... We're not just going to cover Great Britain. Um, I think some of the other figures we're thinking about covering are Marie Antoinette, that might be the only one that's not British. We haven't really determined yeah. yet. Yeah. There's plenty plenty of options to choose from. So yeah. it'll be, I think it'll we be are officially back from our Istanbul vacation, though. So, yes. Yeah. Um, but first, I thought maybe we could cover some of what we've missed. Because it has been a while. Yes. I think pretty much the whole summer. <laughs> yeah. And a fall, maybe. Yeah. Um, we're well into fall. So there's been a lot of gossip. Um, I think the big thing to cover is uh, we're still in the midst of this feud between the Windsors. Um, Well, can we put feud in quotes? Because it's sort of unconfirmed. (laughs) It's unconfirmed, but I think it's it's starting to shape up into a really interesting scenario. Um, So what's going on lately? You know, we're not going to cover the 
um, various stories that cropped up over the summer because they're one after the other. But um, the big thing that I want to cover is Harry and Meghan just recently gave public interviews about the press intrusion and the rough emotions that they're suffering as a result. This was all part of a documentary that was done covering their recent trip to Africa. Um, But I wanted to touch on this because I thought it was really fascinating from a PR perspective, um, something that we've covered a lot here, we talk about is this idea of the, you know, quote, never, never complain, never explain. And that's kind of been the royal family's mantra for some time. And they are not using this playbook. They gave an interview where they are complaining and explaining. And I'm not going to sit here I'm not taking sides I am here as a pure observer I feel very badly for them I think it was very clear from that episode that especially Megan you know she's an outsider she's not she didn't grow up in that kind of fishbowl spotlight I think this has been very hard and I think you can as a human absolutely relate to the emotions especially as she said a new mother a newlywed you're in a new country I mean it's got to be soul crushingly difficult so I want to put that out there at the beginning I 100% sympathize my topic here is that I wanted to focus a little bit more on just from the PR perspective because the explain part yes I, I, I I'm so fascinated by this approach because it is such a departure from the norm so that's kind of what I want to talk about I honestly got shades of Edward VIII and I want to explain what I mean by that I don't mean to compare Harry to Edward VIII at all (laughs) you know we had an episode on him we talked about him but the one thing that I'm getting from this is the one thing about Edward VIII was he had no patience for the game the pageantry the hypocrisy if you will you know he, he always said it's just a bunch of people running around in suits they're just so you know full of themselves they um present one thing to the world and they do the opposite behind closed doors and he famously had no patience for that and I kind of think maybe that's what we're seeing with Harry and Meghan is they're saying look we're not going to play the game that everybody else is playing no I think so in fact that's what Harry said right like he's like I refuse to play a game that killed my mother which sounds super dramatic but it's not untrue at the same time like you know, you could argue that she's the last royal who tried to play the game a little bit differently, but ultimately didn't help her. But I mean, there's this always open question of like, who blames who for her death? But you cannot deny that this game played a major part in her early demise. And so you could see her son desperately trying to avoid that. Exactly. And it's interesting because I want to start first with the press reaction, because we were talking about this. I think it was very different here in America than it was in Great Britain because I remember the day after these interview clips aired, they did a whole segment on the Today Show and I was texting you and I said, it's like somebody has cancer. Like they are <laughs> acting like the, the American press is very sympathetic, almost almost comically so um, in the coverage. I mean, they literally talked about it every day for a week. And then you see the British press kind of taking the tactic that you might expect of like, how dare they? It's kind of more like a a reaction of like, these people are so ungrateful. Um, So I thought that was a really interesting contrast. And I think obviously the difference is 
the people that they're calling out are right. the British press. And um, the British press has d- exhibited for over a year now a complete unwillingness to recognize that their coverage is biased, is racist, and it's all, it's a very much a who me kind of attitude, exactly. but you read the coverage and you just, it's infuriating and it's, it's like dog whistles and it's subtle and it's, it's the, the subtleties of them calling out Harry and Meghan for things that other family members do quite publicly and mm-hmm. get absolutely no mention of. And I think that was something that stuck out to me about, especially something Megan said, which was like, she didn't go in totally naively thinking this would be easy, that there wouldn't be a spotlight, but I think she was naive in expecting it to be fair. And I think the naive, the like the naive part of that that she had was like completely ignoring the fact that she's stepping into an operation steeped in a history that is not fair and is very pro-tradition, pro-custom, but what that can exhibit itself, especially when you have your first prominent member of the royal family of color, is that these are people that have very real biases. I mean, you talk a lot about the British press having this like class bias, right? Of Mm -hmm. the British are very obsessed with status and history and who your family is and all of that. So she's already going to be at a disadvantage coming from America, not coming from this world that they fawn over and, you know, cover breathlessly. And, you know, it's like, we're like, who cares about these, what do they call them? Turnip toffs in the countryside? Mm -hmm. Like who cares? But they very much care. So she's already an outsider in that way, but it's become very clear through the coverage that they don't know what to make of a woman of color in this position. And they also are angling into the more salacious aspects that they can cover because, you know, you bring up race and you sell papers, especially when you bring up race in dog, dog whistly ways and, you know, very unsubtle biases and all of that. And no, that isn't fair. But I think it was a bit naive not to read anything about the history of British tabloid coverage and not expect that. I think, honestly, she came at it with the American sensibility of if I just do a good job, they'll love me because she believes in meritocracy and she forgot this is an aristocracy. It's it's in no way based on achievements. And it's also this family, you know, we could talk about the family reaction at its core. This is run like a corporate business. It's cold-hearted and it's dysfunctional. I don't doubt that they all care about each other, but when it comes to the press, they are going to throw each other under the bus without a second thought. And that's what they've done the whole time. The whole premise, you have to think of it from their, it sounds awful to say this, but from their perspective, the whole point of press coverage, the whole point of public favor is to preserve the monarchy so that means number one is the queen number two is charles and number three is william that means that all of those three people get taken care of at the expense if necessary of other members of the family so the one incident that i did want to bring up was that plane incident if you remember Mm -hmm. so this was where harry and Meghan flew private like two days before they were giving speeches. I forget what the exact the exact circumstances were, but they were at some kind of environmental conference or giving speeches about the environment. And it, it looked a little tone deaf. And look, this is my pet peeve of like celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio too, where they claim to care about the um, climate and all of that. And they fly private everywhere they go. And look, I'm not going to say that there aren't reasons to fly private. Security probably being the number one thing. 
But shortly thereafter, um, William and Kate and their family flew to Scotland on a commercial flight and it was photographed and there was a lot of buzz that they had done that on purpose to make the the Sussexes look bad. And look, I think you can read this three different ways. I think you can read that interpretation into it. I think you can read the interpretation as they had just gotten really bad coverage for flying private. So someone said, whatever you do, don't fly private. Um, And, you know, it was photographed and they did allow those photographs to get out there. And I think if you, you look, they get stuff pulled from the papers all the time. The fact that those photographs were published, especially the fact that it included the children and they weren't pulled from the papers means that they were at a minimum sanctioned after the fact. So I think they probably took advantage of the situation. I'm not I'm not going to suggest that it was a setup from the beginning or anything like that. But that's what I mean is you have a situation where there's negative press and so then you have William and it's not good for William to get negative press. So you have to manipulate the situation into a positive at the expense of his brother. And that is just a example of how it works for everyone in that family. And um, I I also I agree with you on that take and I think the press is the press is setting up the game. The family is playing it willingly, mm-hmm. sometimes to benefit. Although I do want to come back to that benefit question, but also it is incumbent upon the family members to a certain degree to recognize the pitfalls of everything that they do. I mean, to be quite honest, that sounds exhausting, but that's why they have staff to think of these Mm -hmm. things as well. And the one thing that really stuck out to me about this whole plane debacle was, yes, Harry and Meghan are going to get flack for something that everyone else in the family does That's just seems to be the way it is. It's not fair. But if that's the case on the ground and you are trying to launch a climate initiative, and you know that this has been scheduled on the books for months, and you know that this is coming, perhaps it's incumbent upon you and your staff to think through all the angles and say, perhaps this summer is not the time to fly private. And I understand all the reasons they did. You're right. Their security, they flew with their newborn. I understand all of these reasons. And to be fair to them, to have to take that step, it does sound like they did everything they could to offset it. They paid the climate credits, like they did everything. But at the end of the day, they still flew with that amount of footprint and fuel for three people plus staff, whatever. Okay, like, yes. No matter what steps they took to mitigate that, they still did that. And and I'm not saying they didn't have reason to do it. But the other thing you could say is, if this is everything that we have to do, maybe we don't go on this vacation. Like, you know, it's like maybe... Yeah. but. Whatever it was reasons, tone deaf. It was tone it deaf. Was it was tone deaf. And I, I was struck a little bit by the timing of these announcements, like, came a week of these initiatives, came a week after all the press coverage. But I'm like, there, there's no universe in which somebody shouldn't have foreseen that happening. Like, right. it's like, you know, you want to go out there and assert your nobility of caring about the environment. Or, you know, I think a, a more immediate metaphor would be like oh you want to talk about like conservation of animals like maybe don't go on a hunting trip the week before like Mm -hmm. you know just it's that kind of thing where it's like yes the press coverage is unfair the family reaction is unbalanced and you know in a way they're kind of trapped in this prison of their own making but like don't feed the beast (laughs) you know yeah no and that's and that's the thing like 
that's what I'm trying to get at here is is that was a situation where I I would fully believe you if someone told me that William and Kate plan planned to fly private to Scotland and change their mind at the last minute. But I think if if they had doubled down and done it anyway, it would have been worse than yeah. changing their mind. And no, I'm not blaming this, them in that situation. Well, I, no, but I, what I'm trying to get at is this, is this push and pull when you involve the press, it's like every man for himself. And then you can see that with this latest thing where, you know, Harry and Meghan give this interview and they're basically saying like, subtly calling out, I think the royal family and in addition to the press. And then you see these stories that come out like Charles is very worried and William is very worried. And, these stories didn't come from nowhere. You know, these are sanctioned quotes. And I think what you're seeing there is almost like the family saying, you have to play the game of the press. We're going to still play it. And that's that's the difference, though, as you see Charles playing the game with the press. He goes right to the press and says, oh, I'm so worried about them. William goes right to the press and he says, oh, I'm so worried about them. And it's it does a couple of things. It, you know, it's kind of a clap back of like, no, please don't make us look bad by complaining about the situation. It also tells the press, like, we still we still like you. You know, we, we still need you. And the difference I think you see there is Charles and William do need the press. You can't get around that. They, they are going to, both of them, one day rely on that press corps institution to prop up the monarchy, especially Charles. I think... I think you're not wrong, but I want to come back to what I was talking about with the benefit. And I think this ties in as well is you're not wrong. Charles and William are going to need the press. And I think that's why their relationship with the press is different than Harry and Meghan's. And I think it's why they seem to appear sometimes to do things that are directly opposed to the welfare of their son and brother. But I also think that the game has changed and they haven't quite recognized it because this never complain, never explain, we're above all of this lie that they live is helpful when you're operating in the old system. But the moment Megan came into the family, the system changes a little bit because the degree to which she and Harry are being called out for actions that the rest of the family does, you could make the argument someone has to take the brunt and that's the role that they're playing. But the extent of a lot of the coverage is outside of that. And it doesn't matter what their actions are. If they do something good, they're taking attention away from someone else. They, they're in a position where they can't win. And unfortunately, a lot of that stems from the fact that Megan is a woman of color. And the, the coverage of her is very biased and very racist. And it's not just the press. It's other people sending death threats and you know saying she's not quite what they're looking for. She doesn't fit in or she doesn't, you know, it's like these coded messages. And I think when you're bringing in this element of racism, it's something that the family has not had to deal with before because they haven't had a non-white member of their family. And I think that this changes the game. And and, I, and what I really want to focus on is that, yes, it changes the game with the press because the press is playing right into this. The press is horrendously biased as much as they won't admit it. The coverage, especially that you see in the tabloids, like straight out of Compton, all this stuff, it's that is the the least of it. That's the coded stuff. It's the death threats to Harry and like all the stuff that came out that is apparently happening as well. And the family's stiff upper lip, we don't explain this. I just feel like that's not the appropriate approach to something like this where the reasons for the press pushback and maybe the public pushback have changed because you've brought in this extra element and this 
this silence, this, you know, treating it as if the game is the same of like, well, someone's got to take the brunt of it. Where that bleeds over, I think, to imperiling the monarchy is it is 2019 and silence on racism is not stiff upper lip. The family never explains. It reads as endorsement of racism. Right. And the family not supporting Meghan and Harry in this situation reads as tone deafness. It reads as cruelty. As much as there are all these reasons that you've pointed out as to why they might reply this way, you what they're going to do is damage the monarchy long term because never forget that Britain is an increasingly diverse place where the monarchy's role in that society is increasingly at question. And when you don't defend a member of your family that is a minority, that is an quote, other, what does that say about the subjects that you're ruling who also fit that profile? They love Megan because they see themselves in her, that she's not white, she's not historically, you know, British upper crust. She she, recogn- she represents in some way this new modern Britain that is inclusive and, you know, is a world in which somewhat a woman of color can marry into the royal family. And their treatment of her signals that all these other subjects that sit under the crown in Britain are also only token, like, there's only a tokenism of, like, we welcome you. So all these events where they go out and they meet with the members of the community who are a minority, who are not Christian, who are, you know, people of color, it basically adds an element of phoniness to every single one of these, like, interactions, because how can you say that you embrace this diversity, that you welcome it, that you see everybody as a member of your country, if you have a member of your family that you can't even get off your couch and defend? Well, I think you bring up a good point. It's, it's a fiction. It's a fiction. The whole, the whole institution is a fiction. And so they've, but they've never had to confront that and they don't know how to. And I think you're right. This is making them all uncomfortable because they they just have never had to deal with this before. And they they aren't I agree with you. They aren't dealing with it well. I I just think what fascinates me is you see one faction clinging to the way it's always been and then you see another faction shaking things up and you know I'd use the example of Instagram Harry and Meghan are using their Instagram as a spokesperson as a way to make press releases because they can circumvent the press that way um and I don't I don't know I don't know what the strategy is on either side because frankly I don't think it's necessarily working on either side no but I think this has exposed a lot of the ugliness. I think the, I'd say in America, at least, the PR is probably the worst it's been in a very, very long time. And I want to bring up as a footnote to all of this, Andrew continues to do public events with this Jeffrey Epstein pedophile. The reports that have come out about Andrew and he continues to do public events and no one says anything in contrast well, here's, to the... It, I just think it's disgusting. Here's a question I have for you. So you mentioned, and I think you're right, like the importance, the the chain of importance in this family, the queen comes first. And so I think part of that is the queen is made happy at all expenses, right? Like, and the press, it's in their best interest to make the queen happy. And so something I've been thinking about all summer basically is to what extent are 
Meghan and Harry also being thrown under the bus as a distraction because if you let the press one run wild with racist stories and unfair coverage and you give them something else to focus on, then they're not noticing the pedophile in the corner, right? Like, Oh, I think they're 100% being used that way. Because yeah. if they're talking about Meghan's black nail polish, they're not talking about Andrew having an orgy with underage girls. Yeah. I don't really want to talk about Andrew too much because that whole thing no, is absolutely No, but I think it's relevant because I, it think is relevant. I think it's, you ignore him, you keep the queen happy and, you know, he's long been thought of as the queen's favorite son and I'm sure he's in trouble somewhat with his mother, but not enough to give him, you know, that he's fair game. So, and I think it's so interesting though. What interests me about this whole thing is we could talk, we could talk, and I do want to wrap up this discussion. We, we could talk could, about this all day. We could probably talk about this all day. <laughs> And I think, like, to you and I, like, you know, obviously we're probably more disposed to defend Megan because she's an American and, and you know, we I don't think she's a, I want to be clear, I don't think she's, like, a perfect person. Like, I think, right. but you know, I read, again, I only before. know about her through the press. I'm not sure, like, if I met her in real life, like, we'd be friends. Probably not. But, like, I just, like, well, see the degree We talked about this of, before. You can't, yeah. it leaves no room for any legitimate criticism. No. And that's, you know, for people like us, that's that's the sad reality is where we want to maybe say like, oh, I didn't like the length of her dress, but you have to be really careful because well, I, she's getting so much cr- other crap from other But that's quarters. what I question about the press too is like that is what they're doing is they're kind of like shortening the slack that they have because Harry and Meghan, I want to talk, you know, going back to this climate initiative, that was a little legitimate misstep, but they can't call them out for that because calling them out for flying private in the way that they did it was so hypocritical that they've Mm -hmm. undercut any, any criticism they could legitimately pose about the way that they handled this rollout. And it's like, you would think as the press, they would be cognizant of this and aware is like, you are damaging your long-term ability to do your job if you focus on the nonsense. Yeah. So I just want to bring up just to round this out, you know, what the long-term strategy of Harry and Meghan might be, because it seems like, to me, their strategy is reach the people. Get the public Maybe that goodwill. is the best way to do it, because the people are the only reason the monarchy still exists, is because exactly. the people on balance think it's still a good idea. The monarchy doesn't do anything in the government. I mean, you see, like, Queen Elizabeth having to allow Boris Johnson to do whatever he wants, because it's in, it, like it's no longer in her job description to say no. So the only legitimacy they have is that the people still care enough about them to have them there. So like, I think long term, Harry and Meghan are probably going down the right path. Whether they're successful, I don't know. But like, yeah, I guess I. I mean, I'm assuming there's a long term strategy beyond like two years but I was wondering about that because I think if you go this strategy of use the Instagram give the interviews you know that was Diana's strategy it was when the they're doing it in a subtler way it's very subtle but it's you know that it's in a stark contrast I think of Megan and Kate and this is not I'm not trying to compare women versus women but we've talked about this before Kate is a carefully curated blank slate and I think that's done on purpose. Like we talked, we don't know. And nobody knows anything about her. Nobody knows what she likes to do for fun. Nobody knows who her friends are. Nobody knows what she really cares about, like what she really likes to wear. Because I like to think her style wouldn't naturally be coat dress after coat dress after coat dress if she wasn't the future queen of England. But what do I know? I'm just, my point is it's a very, very different approach. And I think to me, 
if I was saying long-term strategy, I'm seeing a long-term strategy maybe less and less associated with the monarchy. Yeah. But but then again, but then again, I come back to that and I'm saying in 10 years, Harry's going to be the son of the King of England. How, how much leeway does he really have there? I mean, he's only got leeway in that the, the future of the monarchy has diverged from him. So he does have more leeway. And, and, and that is like the thing about Kate is like, she's boring by design because that's like boring is what history is going to be kindest mm-hmm, towards, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's not going to have as the future queen of England, you know, she's not going to have scandals or dumb photos of like fashion missteps if she's just constant, right? Like, and it's boring in the moment, but like, I do think long-term for, for her, it is the right strategy. And I think for William too. And like, that's because they are stuck in this, they can't diverge. Like as maybe it might be helpful if they did, because they do have at the same time, they're a little bit more stuck, but they have more power to change the monarchy in a way. But I think I think if you diverge too much, then it becomes clear there's really no point. No, absolutely. I mean, the coat dresses and the stodginess kind of add to this mythology of a never changing system. But I mean, it is changing, and but and I and that's what I really think about. Like their mistakes that they're making is like they don't have to change. They don't have to go from like zero to a hundred, but you do have to recognize the changes that are happening that are different and you you need to embrace the things that are going to move you forward and not keep so far in the past that you become irrelevant and i think that's the problem is like their their ultimate goal is to stay relevant but relevancy also means awareness of the times that you exist in um, they exist in upper class white crusty yeah. society but they're, the people who work for them, I mean, for the yeah. most part, probably do too, but not all of them. I think, so, I think I'm, I'm really, what, I want, what I'm getting at with this whole conversation is I'm really fascinated by how this is all unfolding. And I think this is something to keep an eye on because in five years time, 10 years time, people might be talking about this. Like they talked about the death of Diana. Like it changed the way they acknowledged the public. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wrap it up there because like we literally yeah, we should could just stop. <laughs> continue forever. But I just I think it's really fascinating. And I think if you are a person who likes to observe this stuff, I think if you if you take a step back and you just look at the unprecedented nature of a lot of this communication, it's it's a really interesting thing to observe. So that was just what I wanted to talk about. Um, but uh if we segue back to our main topic, speaking of observation, the reason the War of the Roses is one of my favorite topics in British history is you can look back and look at every mistake and trace every development to someone's boneheaded move. And I love that. And what's the rationale for all their boneheaded moves most of the time? Ego. Power. <laughs> it's How really, shocking. It's really fascinating. And I think that there's a reason why Shakespeare has a whole suite of plays that cover this time period in British history, um, although very slanted, because let's not forget that Shakespeare was writing during the reign of um, Edward the Seventh and Elizabeth, Elizabeth. I. And... Yep. You gotta you gotta maintain that Tudor 
grasp on power. So certainly don't look to Shakespeare for all of your history of this area, but I think Which is why plays. in Shakespeare's world, the Yorks are usually in the right. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But because, he also he also like yeah. glossed over a lot of a lot of actual madness and things like that. Um, but anyway, you know, like I said, there's just a reason why he wrote a lot about it because even by that time they rec- they could look back and recognize like, hey, that was like a big soap opera. So as we are talking about, it's the War of the Roses. And I mentioned we were going to start with Richard II because even though he is not, strictly speaking, part of the wars, um, really that starts with Henry VI. Um, I think it's worth covering him and his reign and his... Uh, ascension and fall from grace because a lot of these events directly led to the tensions that um, stoked the wars. And the Wars of the Roses are very, it's a series of skirmishes. It's not one long war. Um, But I thought we should cover all the bases. So just to give some family background and some context for all of this tension, um, We've hinted at this previously, but everything goes back to Edward III. And um, we talked about this before, but that's the monarch that Meghan Markle is descended mm-hmm. from. And well, I, one day we'll have to do a whole series on him, I think. Well, I'm going to cover a bit of him, but okay. I think I think the reason everyone's descended from him is that he had 13 children. Yeah. Um, and those were just his legitimate children. Um but where we are in this time in British history is we're firmly in the midst of the Plantagenet rule. So um, this is the house that starts with uh, Henry II. And, uh, you know, starting from 1154 down to, um, well, 1327 is when Edward started his reign. The crown has been passed from father to son in an unbroken line, which as we'll see uh, moving forward in British history, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Um, Edward himself ruled England for 50 years. So he took the throne in 1327 and he died in 1377. And his reign is notable because it came after another turbulent period in English history. So his grandfather was Edward I, also known as Longshanks and the Hammer of the Scots. And if you want context for that, I would recommend the movie Braveheart, not for its historical accuracy, but it is a very good movie. Um, So that's the king that is sparring with Mel Gibson in the movie Braveheart. Um, But Edward I was a very serious man and a very accomplished military leader. And then he had a son, Edward II, who was the father of Edward III, and he was kind of a dud. Um, He was even deposed by his own wife. So when Edward takes the throne at 14, because his father has been deposed and murdered, um, everyone's looking to him for stability. And he did actually manage to resist attempts to control him. Notably, his mother and his mother's lover were trying to control him, but he took care of business there. And um, despite that, he did have a little bit of a turbulent rule. But the highlights include continuing conflicts with the Scots and notably the start of the Hundred Years' War, which we've talked about before. This is the war where England decides 
they're entitled to the throne of France and they're going to try to conquer France from England, which didn't really go so well for them. But in Edward's time, one of his victories is he captures Calais, which, or Calais, which is um, the last remaining French territory held by the English in the time of Henry VIII. And we talked about um, that was a pretty crushing loss when they did actually lose Calais. Um, Also, the Black Death makes an appearance. So, Also, Calais is where Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn got married. Yes. So, uh, you know, if they'd never taken Calais during Edward III's time period, who knows where they would have gotten married. (laughs) (laughs) Or if. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm just trying to set the stage for where we are in British history. Um, You know, one of the things we've talked about with the British kings is the princes, their sons that they have, are kind of a thorn in their side but Edward III is an exception so he married Philippa of Hainault Hainault it's French I don't really know how to say it um but they had Anol or something Anol yeah I can't I don't know no I don't we won't have to say it again after this but they had 13 children Um, but sorry to the girls, we're only going to worry about five of them, and those would be his five sons who lived to adulthood. So we have Edward the Black Prince, who is the first Prince of Wales. Can I interject? He is also Edward, who appears in A Knight's Tale. Yes, so we're in that time (laughs) period as well, although that movie is very apocryphal, but yeah. But Jeffrey Chaucer does appear in that movie as well. And um, I didn't really talk about this, but um, he was actually uh, one of the people we're going to talk about was his brother-in-law. And um, I, I think it was Edward III that was a patron of Chaucer or it was his one of his sons. But either way, Chaucer is right smack dab in this time period as well. Um, so Maybe we it have, was Edward the Black Prince. That no, makes sense, given the events of A Knight's Tale. <laughs> it wasn't him. Spoiler okay. alert. But, um, so we have Edward the Black Prince, who's the first Prince of Wales. We have Lionel of Antwerp, who is the first Duke of Clarence. We have John of Gaunt, who is the first Duke of Lancaster. Although, put an asterisk next to that, because there was... I did see reference to another Duke of Lancaster before this, but he's the first Royal Duke of Lancaster. Okay. Uh, we have Edmund of Langley, who's the first Duke of York, and we have Thomas mm. of Woodstock, who's the first Duke of Gloucester. So what you these might be, names sound familiar. These names might sound familiar to you, and what you might be noticing as well is they're all the first. So what Edward did is uh, he created, first of all, he arranged very advantageous marriages for all of his sons. They all married extremely wealthy English heiresses, and then he gave them all dukedoms. And uh, he didn't have conflict with all of his sons, but it might be because he gave them a lot. It's easy to be happy when you're a duke and you're very rich and you're very powerful. So this kind of sounds like a great idea, but you can also say that this led to one of the root causes of the Wars of the Roses. Because at the time, everybody regarded this as a successful move, but what it did was he forgot to remember that money and power can corrupt you and Mm. once you get it you don't want to give it away but for the time being just know that he has five sons who support him unconditionally they're all very happy but he at the same time has made them all very very wealthy and very very powerful this is the first time in british history that you have 
dukes. So there used to be earls and barons, and we talked about that in our um, episode we did on all of the titles. But dukes weren't really a thing, and what he's done is he's made all of the princes dukes. So this is where you see that... Uh, Which is something that carries through today. Exactly. So I was going to say, that's where you see the start of this. Edward the, Th- the reason why everybody talks about Edward III is he started a lot of these traditions that we still see today. Like, he created his son, the Prince of Wales. It was the first time anybody had done that. He made his son's royal dukes. For, you know, first time anybody had done that. What you see here is the title of duke actually carries more weight than the title of prince because it comes with it land and money. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I keep stressing that, but that's something that... Um, I think you could say was a really big motivator for a lot of these players. So here's what happens. After Edward III dies, we have the ascension of Richard II. So I did mention Edward the Black Prince, but the Black Prince unfortunately predeceased his father by one year. And he had only one heir, his nine-year-old son, Richard of Bordeaux. Uh, Again, some of the causes of the Wars of the Roses can be traced back to his rather unfortunate reign. We've talked about this a lot, but it's never a good idea to stick a baby on the throne. Yeah. Um, So he's not to be confused with Richard I. No. Who would would be be, Lionheart. Yes. That goes back way, way back. Yeah. Um, So he didn't really have a... Because you would think he would be Richard II. Or are we talking about... Is Richard of Bordeaux and Richard II the same? Yes. Okay. That's just what he was called. Um, a lot of these people are going to have titles, I'm, and I'm going to refer to them by their... A lot of people were named after the castles where they um, were born, and I'm going to use those references a lot because everybody has the same name. We have a lot of Richards. We have a lot of Edmonds, Edwards, and Henrys. So just a side note then, does that mean that Richard was born in Bordeaux and Lionel was born in Antwerp and so you have a lot of like Belgian and French here? Well, I'm not actually sure, but uh, Bordeaux, I mean, you have to remember we're at the point where Edward III claimed that he was the king of France. Right. And that comes Because I'm, I'm just noticing like Antwerp, Gaunt, like these are lands that are not in England. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a lot of French uh, lands. I mean, this is still, the Duchy of Aquitaine is still part of um, the British collection, if you will. Right. I mean, the Hundred Years' War started when Edward III claimed the throne of France, and the French said no, because that claim comes through your mother, so it doesn't count. And he said, well, screw you, I'm going to invade France, and I'm going to try to take some of these lands for myself. And it didn't go so well for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, they did get a few territories back, but it was really a push and pull. But let's first let's check back in with Edward's other other sons. So Edward the Black Prince has died, and his son Richard has taken the throne as Richard II. But we have to look and see what's going on with these other guys because it's very relevant. So Lionel of Antwerp was Edward's second son. And he made a very good marriage to a woman called Elizabeth de Burr. Uh, she brought a lot of Irish titles and a lot of money. So he became a really big player in Ireland. Um, they only had a daughter, however. But she had heirs of her own that made up one part of the eventual York claim. So keep that in the back of your mind. 
And um, her daughter married a guy called Edmund Mortimer, who was the third Earl of March, which started the Mortimer branch of the Yorks. Mm. The Yorks, the York claim, as we will see, is made up of a, an amalgamation of several different claims to the throne, which is why it was so powerful. The Mortimers themselves were extremely rich and had vast land holdings in Wales. So we see Ireland, we see Wales, all coming into this branch of the family. So the York claim goes up basically through Lionel. One tenant of it does. Okay. As you the Mortimer say. side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you have John of Gaunt, who is Edward's second son. And he married Blanche of Lancaster, which gave him the Lancastrian holdings. I thought he was the third son. He's the second. I thought Richard oh, was Oh, he third. is the third. I'm sorry. The Black Prince is dead. So I'm now... Sorry, I'm trying really yeah. hard to keep this I'm so I'm so sorry. Straight. What yeah. I'm going to do is I'm not going to take a family tree that you find online because they have so many people involved. I'm going to yeah. make a... We'll put it on our website. I'll make a little family tree that shows... Like who all these people are. So right, just consider the Black Prince out of the picture. But these, we're talking about Richard's uncles. Yes, these are Richard's okay. uncles. So John of Gaunt was, you're right, the third son, second oldest currently living at the time. And he marries Blanche of Lancaster, which gives him the Lancastrian holdings, which stem all the way down from the time of Henry III. These are, this is like the biggest dukedom in England at the time. Uh, remember we talked about Queen Elizabeth as the Duke of Lancaster? Mm-hmm. This goes all the way back to this. Okay. That's where Elizabeth gets her pennies from. Lots of money. Not so, the people. Not the people. <laughs> yeah. As a result, Gaunt was incredibly wealthy. He owned vast estates in England and France. But he was never very popular, and many of the nobles resented his wealth. Um, one of the things he had going for him, though, is he had several children, which made his family a threat. So... His family tree is actually very important. He had eight children with Blanche of Lancaster. So three lived to adulthood. He had two daughters. So we're not going to talk about them, unfortunately. And then he had his heir, Henry Bolingbroke. Then he had two children with his second wife, Constance of Castile. They don't come into place. So we're not really going to talk about them. And then he had four children with a woman called Catherine Swinford, who was his longtime mistress and eventual third wife. These children have the surname Beaufort, which is from the Hmm. castle where they were all born. They were later legitimized but excluded from the succession. They're important because descendants of John Beaufort include the Dukes of Somerset and ultimately the House of Tudor. Mm -hmm. Henry Beaufort became a cardinal and was very powerful. Thomas Beaufort became the Duke of Exeter and his daughter Joan became the matriarch of the Neville family who was very interrelated with the Yorks. So these Beauforts are in the midst of everything. So the Neville Mortimer, they're both eventually on the York claim. Mm-hmm. So as but you they s- also, through the Nevilles, have ties to the Lancaster. They're all interrelated. But Jeez. the Yorks... This is a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. I just, I'm, I'm trying to explain it all because a lot of these people are going to come into the story. But I'm trying to rush through it. Then we have Edmund of Langley, who married Isabella of Castile and had three children. Um... And he's important because he's the first Duke of York, and he was actually created the Duke of York by Richard II, not his father, um, because he was was a lot younger than his other brothers. Because remember, um, Edward III had 13 children. And then we have Thomas of Woodstock, who was the first... Um, Duke of Gloucester, but he's the answer. He's the ancestor to the Dukes of Buckingham, 
which in the time of Henry VIII were a severe threat. And if you ever saw the um, Tudors, when Henry's going, he's a Plantagenet, mm. <laughs> it, was a, it was a big deal. So I just, I'm bringing this up because as Richard is taking the throne, his uncles are also continuing to sort of spread their tentacles into British upper crust society. So you've got, to set the stage here, you've got the actual king, Richard II, who, and then his uncles who have arguably together as much or more power. So by the time of Richard II, there's a lot of Plantagenets running around and they all have power, titles, and money. And none of this is a good thing when your king ascends to the throne at nine years old. So let's talk about Richard for a minute. He's fairly attractive, um, but he was not a soldier, not particularly good at physical pursuits. He was arrogant, headstrong, and politically inept. Um, but he was very educated and he was a lover of all things French, which let's remember the context. That's very problematic. Everyone, the British are trying to conquer the French and Richard just thinks they're great. Um, he also promoted peace with France, which was very popular. Sorry to interrupt, but do you know what that reminds me of is, um, was it, um, yeah, Mehmet the second capturing Constantinople but everybody didn't like him because he admired Alexander the Great yeah yeah Yeah. I mean he's pretty much very uh admiring of his enemy and uh no one really likes that very much um but he was really into the pageantry of the monarchy so that's kind of what he's known for is just kind of beefing up the ceremonial roles he took an interest in beautifying the palaces and all of that but if you're, if you're noticing a trend here, I'm not talking about any specific, real, concrete accomplishments as king, because the reality is there just weren't many. Um, and like many boy kings, unfortunately, he's prone to favorites, and that extended into adulthood. So um, the big one that you need to know is Robert de Vere, who's the Earl of Oxford. So the thing about Richard is he was married... His wife was um, Anne of Bohemia, but they didn't have any kids. And it's a rumor that maybe he was um, homosexual. He certainly had male favorites. He, um, some of those men were known to engage in homosexual relationships. So a lot of people think that one of the reasons why he was so susceptible to this outside influence is maybe there was a romantic relationship going on and that's why he, to his detriment, um, would favor these men over others. Or more problematically and hard to, you know, confirm is maybe he was groomed and abused as a young child into this situation that similar is to also a the brother of Isabella that you remember is a possibility so I think the unfortunate reality is not to dismiss that possibility but at the time they would have seen no distinction right just don't want to totally lay the blame no. at Richard's oh, I'm feet. not yeah <laughs> I'm just saying yeah it was the takeaway here is that he had favorites that he defended to the point of like questioning his sanity um a lot of this led to tension with his cousin henry of bolingbroke so henry of bolingbroke is the son of john of gaunt he is his heir 
and he is a descendant of Henry III, and his he's sorry, he's married to a woman named Mary, who's also a descendant of Henry III, and they had several children together. So Henry of Bolingbroke, if you compare him to his cousin, is everything that Richard is not. He went on crusade twice. He was very accomplished. Um, he also cares a lot about the state of the politics and governance in Britain. So in response to Richard's favoritism, he allies himself with several other lords who have an issue with what's going on. And these men are Thomas of Woodstock, Richard Fitzalan, who was the Earl of Arundel, Thomas Mowbray, who's the Earl of Nottingham, and the Earl of Warwick. And all of these men had a common goal, which was to restore order to Richard's governance. And so they reserve, they referred to themselves as the Lord's appellant because they went to Richard together and they appealed to him to set aside his favorites and just start governing as a king should. So, of course, Richard doesn't care what they think. And so what they do is they meet the Earl of Oxford on the battlefield in Oxfordshire and they win and they banish him from England after the battle. And then they later Which one's ask, the Earl of Oxford? He's Richard... He's uh, Robert de Vere, who was okay. the one who was maybe in a sexual relationship okay. with okay. Richard. So they, they banish Richard's favorite. And Richard can't do anything about this. So then they go to Richard, and they ask for all the other favorites to be executed. So they forced Richard's hand. And he is not happy. And then as what happens at this time as well is his wife dies. And she had been kind of a tempering influence on him. And so she's gone. So there's nowhere to no one to temper his worst impulses. And he becomes something of a tyrant, an autocrat. So he's just start. He dismisses Parliament. So what he does is he. I was reading about this. It's kind of interesting. So Parliament at this time, their role was really they kind of govern the finances and they sort of put a rubber stamp on everything that the king did and the way they did that was through his allowance so he calls parliament and asks for this like exorbitant sum of money and they give it to him and it's enough money where he's not going to need to call another parliament for like 10 years so he dismisses them all and he just starts ruling on his own so in 1396 he signed 28 year truce with france very unpopular and to seal this he marries the six-year-old daughter of Charles VI. So he's allied himself to France through a marriage alliance, but he's done so in a way that can't possibly lead to heirs. So this is an incredibly unpopular move, and Richard realizes he's kind of out on a limb by himself, so he has to seek allies. So where does he go? He goes to his uncle, John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt, as I mentioned, was very unpopular but he's also incredibly wealthy and very powerful. And through his entire life, there was a suspicion that as a result of the land and wealth that he has amassed, that he had his eye on the throne. So dispel any suspicion of this, he is a staunch supporter of his nephew. And one of the reasons why is because Richard gives him a lot of 
a lot of things that he wants. So Richard goes to the Pope, and he convinces the Pope to legitimize his marriage and his children with Catherine Swinford. He declares all the Beaufort children legitimate and has this confirmed by an act of parliament. So this elevates the Beauforts even further. He makes one of them a cardinal. He gives, he gives out titles. He says, you guys are the best. You're my cousins. You're true-born heirs of John. Here's all the candy, basically. And then, unfortunately, what you see at this time is Richard's mental health starts to take a turn for the worst. So he becomes paranoid and detached from reality. He tries to get rid of Parliament, as we mentioned, and rule on his own. He throws out all semblance of law and order. Um, he tried at this time to get elected Holy Roman Emperor. Okay. Unsuccessfully. Um, he starts not surprisingly. Not surprisingly. <laughs> he starts imposing illegal taxes. They're like, He's, we don't let British people into this mm -hmm. club. <laughs> but he tried. He starts imposing all these taxes. He, he's maintaining a private army, so he's not even relying on you know, the feudal system here where all the dukes and barons and earls would be providing him with an army. He's just maintaining his own. And it's generally a miserable time for everyone. And he also decides now's the time to take revenge on the Lord's appellant. So he has his cousin, Edward, the Earl of Rutland. So he's the son of the Duke of York. So he's his first cousin. Arranged for his other uncle's murder. So this was Thomas, the first Duke of Gloucester. And Rutland was also, at the time, Richard's new favorite. And it's a lot of people think they were also in a sexual relationship. So he, he, he doesn't question anything. He has his uncle murdered. He takes care of business. And then Thomas Mowbray, who was another of the Lord's appellants, tries to warn Bolingbroke. And Bolingbroke goes to his father, Gaunt, who tells the king... So then, this is this is like a really interesting story. So then, Gaunt is Gaunt the is, really wealthy one. Yes, yes. Um, so Gaunt. I tells need a the, chart. I know we're gonna have to make one. So Gaunt tells him this guy Thomas Mowbray is telling everybody that you're going after them, and so um, they're at court, and Mowbray is saying, and Bolingbroke is accusing Mowbray of treason, and Mowbray is saying, no, Bolingbroke is accused of treason. And so to solve the issue, they're supposed to duel each other. But they literally get out on the field where they're going to they're gonna fight each other. They're dressed in full armor. They're ready to go. And instead, Richard says, you know what? You're both banished. So he exiles Mowbray for life and Bolingbroke for 10 years. And so this was really unpopular because there was no real reason to do so. And then he has the Earl of Arundel executed and the Earl of Warwick exiled for life. Thus, he's dealt with his enemies, the Lord's Pellant, and taken care of business. But one thing that Richard failed to think about here, and I think the picture I'm trying to paint here is somebody who's very emotional but not thinking long term. The problem is the succession. Richard has no children and his wife is unlikely to bear an heir for a while. So at the time, his heir is Roger Mortimer. So this is Lionel of Antwerp's grandson. And if you remember, Lionel is the second son of Edward III. Therefore, any of his children should be next in line after Richard. Um, Roger dies in Ireland in 1398, leaving his seven-year-old son, Edmund, as Richard's heir. So again, we're not really in a good situation where we have a seven-year-old child ready to take the throne and Richard has no children of his own. 
And because he exiled Henry Bolingbroke, Gaunt and Richard are estranged at this point. Gaunt unfortunately dies in 1399, which was the final straw to Richard's reign because Henry Bolingbroke is coming back and he's coming for revenge. So do you get where Bolingbroke... So, sorry. Gaunt and Richard are estranged because Richard had exiled Bolingbroke, who was the son of Gaunt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now Gaunt is dead, so Bolingbroke is coming back. So if we're thinking about heirs, we've got Richard on the throne with no children. His next heir is the son of his eldest uncle. Yep. And then Well, his grandson would, of his eldest uncle. Right. And then so Bolingbroke would theoretically be next in line? After the seven-year-old. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So this is the whole issue of the male line, right? You're supposed to go through the heirs of the male line. So Edward, the Black Prince, was first. Richard is his son. Nobody's arguing that. The issue that we start to see is who should come next. Right. So Henry Bolingbroke comes back. And at his father's death, he should have become the Duke of Lancaster. Um, As we talked about, the Lancastrian wealth was the biggest in England. Unfortunately, Richard takes it all and distributes it to his own supporters. And he also told Henry Bolingbroke, you know what? Forget 10 years, you're exiled for life. This turns out to be a fatal mistake on Richard's part. So Bolingbroke decides, I'm coming back to England anyway. And his pretense for doing this was to protect his inheritance. Meanwhile, in May of 1399, Richard has sailed to Ireland to try to deal with the unrest that sprang up after Roger Mortimer's death. So Roger Mortimer is the son of Lionel of Antwerp, or sorry, is the grandson of Lionel of Antwerp. And he's died and he's left a seven-year-old child. So it's kind of a mess. And um, Richard's just going to go there to try to shore up support and tell everybody, look, even though a seven-year-old's here, everything's fine. He's already declared this child his heir. He made his uncle, the Duke of York, his regent. His cousin, Rutland, goes with him to Ireland. So Richard's just trying to show stability to the Irish. Meanwhile, Bolingbroke lands in Yorkshire and begins heading to London, and he is met with massive support and quickly gathers a very large army. So this leaves everybody in a bind because everybody's not really sure which side to support, notably the Duke of York, who could support his nephew, the king, or his nephew, the would-be king. He kind of takes a step back and sort of waits to see which way the wind is blowing. But while but why at this point is Bolingbroke accepted as a would-be king because everybody is sick of Richard because Richard is not governing he's imposing taxes he's taking people's land and giving them to his favorites it's it's just a disaster but he's already established an heir so who is only seven who's only problematic yes okay because Richard's reign is considered the most disastrous in English history you know, sometimes do you ever think about how differently this would have gone if they had things like antibiotics and healthcare, and you wouldn't have had like all these fathers dying when their sons are like seven? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it would be very different. <laughs> um, so, meanwhile, as I said, Henry Bolingbroke is gra- gathering support. So the Archbishop of Canterbury is out there telling everyone, "Don't worry, if you support Henry Bolingbroke, you're going to go to heaven." Jeez. 
And Bolingbroke has executed the worst of Richard's advisors. By the time the news of all of this reaches Richard, he's well on his way to overthrow him. He tried, um, Richard tried to raise an army, but had difficulty gathering supporters. In fact, Rutland, who's his favorite, who's there with him in Ireland, has abandoned him. His uncle, the Duke of York, has decided to support Henry, Henry Bolingbroke. I mean, everybody sees, look, supporting Richard is not a winning proposition, so everybody gets on Henry's side. And as a result, Richard is eventually captured. Bolingbroke takes him into London and puts him in the tower. So here's the thing. Henry Bolingbroke initially swore he was not there for the crown. But by the time he gets to London and he has this swelling of support, he's starting to think, okay, well, Richard can't be the king. What are we going to do about this? So he appoints a commission to determine who should be king. So the other nobles are not happy at the prospect of Bolingbroke on the throne. Because remember, this is all the Duke of the Duchy of um, Lancaster, which they were already suspicious of. All that wealth and land and power. And now they're handing this guy the crown of England. But they're fine getting rid of Richard. So they have to figure out what the best alternative is. The problem is that Richard's heir is seven years old. And if we remember, Richard took the throne at nine. That was a disaster. So no one's really willing to go down that road. So Bolingbroke is trying to force Richard to abdicate, but he's not giving in. But eventually he knows he has no choice because it's so clear he has no supporters left. So he decides he's going to abdicate and request Henry Bolingbroke take his place. He gave him his ring so that Henry could show everybody that Richard supported him. And then Richard addressed Parliament to make it official. So at that point, they're kind of stuck because the king is abdicating like everybody wants. But he's saying, and you should crown my cousin, who nobody really wants. But they also don't want a seven-year-old child. So this is kind of a crappy situation. Nevertheless, Henry of Lancaster, as I'm going to call him now, was then declared King of England. So he is so theatrical about this. They declare him King of England and he goes and he sits in his father, John of Gaunt's former seat where he sat as the Duke of Lancaster in Parliament. But then the archbishops come and pick him up and lead him to the throne and sit him down. And then Henry declares that he is descended by the right line of the blood coming from the good Lord, Henry III. Thus, his usurpation is complete. So just so I'm backtracking correctly, we now have the, the son of the third son of Richard or Edward III mm-hmm. taking the crown from the son of the first son. Yes, and Got skipping it. over the, the second. great-grandson of the second. Got it. So he had no business taking this throne. So here's what, like, what just happened? Everyone's kind of looking around like, what just happened? What happened is the House of Lancaster just stole the throne. So right here we have the seeds of the beginning of the Wars of the Roses. They swooped in and said, it's ours. And the legitimacy of, the legitimacy of this is is an issue and it's one that's never going to go away so it all goes back to the way that henry claimed he was the rightful king henry claimed he's the rightful king based on his descent from edmund crouchback who was the first earl of lancaster so henry's mother is blanche of lancaster and her grandfather is 
Edmund Crouchback, who was the second son of Henry III. Henry is claiming that Edmund was the eldest son, not the second. And he says that Edward I, Longshanks, that we talked about, was the second son but was named as the first because he was a he he was a better physical specimen so they're basically trying to rewrite history yes to support their claim but the implication of this is that every king since edward longshanks has been a usurper to the crown yeah yep so this has two benefits the first is it makes his claim better but it also excludes the Beauforts from succession because their claim could only come through John of Gaunt. Henry's claiming his succession through his mother. And, oh, my mm-hmm. father is augmenting my claim, but really it's through my mother. But he's also declaring his father illegitimate. <laughs> mm, no, he's not declaring his because father. Because his father's father, yeah, his father he is, was because never his king. father. No, but his father's father was, and then he's saying that his father's father should never have been king. Yep. So he's saying his grandfather should never have been king. So he's taking the stronger claim through his mother, but like as we've talked about, succession goes through the father. So yes. So this is very prob- – you bring up a very good point. This is a very problematic issue. So the whole point of this falsehood is to help bolster the decision to overlook the Mortimer claim. But Henry – But it also seems to undercut his own claim. No, because he's he's claiming it through his mother. But that's what I mean. Like, he's saying, like, the fact that English succession is male-based, but he's staking his entire claim through his mother would seem that this path wouldn't be the way to go because he's undercutting his own claim. Right. So here's the thing. It's based in... So the French model, Salic law, is is the model that overlooks descent through the female line. And so it's all kind of hypocritical, right? Because he's saying his mother is descended from Edmund Crouchback, who's the rightful heir. So he's saying, I am correct. But Salic law is the French model, which says that not only can you not have descent through a female, the fe- to a female, the female cannot pass the crown. So that's the mm-hmm. whole basis of overlooking Lionel of Antwerp's line because he only had a daughter who, ma- who married the Mortimer guy who's, who's Edmund's ancestor. And Henry's saying, oh, no, 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 no. You can't pass that down through a woman. Never mind the fact that he's claiming his heirship through his mother. So it's all very Yeah, because even if, even if Edward I was the second son, the... F- Edmund Crouchback only had a daughter, right? So, like... Yeah. And this... It, it doesn't make any yeah. sense that anybody went along with this. Yeah. Like, you go up two generations and it falls well, apart. Well, nobody really did. Ed, uh, Henry's the only one claiming this. Everyone else is kind of like, yeah, that's not a thing. Because if you remember, the Salic law French model is the reason why Edward III was denied the throne of France. And yeah. the English have never followed this. So they're all kind of looking at him like, dude, this is kind of like overkill. Like, we gave you the throne. Henry's the wealthiest and most powerful man in England already, and he has four sons. Everybody's fine with him being king. They're kind of like, why why are you clinging to this falsehood? But it made Henry feel better, so he was insistent. The real problem here is that he's setting an incredibly dangerous precedent of revising the history of the succession. So this comes back to bite the House of Lancaster down the line. Team York, man. Come on. <laughs> right. Well, the Mortimers <laughs> would bide their time, intermarrying with other powerful families, which culminated in the marriage between Edmund's sister, Anne, 
Anne Mortimer, and the Earl of Cambridge, who was the son of the Duke of York. Their son was Richard, the third Duke of York, who we will talk about when we talk about Henry VI. But just know that claim lay dormant for a while, and then all hell broke loose. Yeah. So, also, there's a few issues here. France refuses to recognize Henry's claim, leading to a renewed battle in the Hundred Years' War. So if you remember, Richard was all about peace with France. Henry mm-hmm. takes the throne, and France is like, yeah, you're not the king. And so Henry's response is, okay, fine, we're going to resume our war. And sorry, does Henry become Henry IV? Yes. Okay. So Henry also has to do something with Richard, because while all of this is going on, Richard is still in prison in the Tower of London. And Henry really didn't want to execute him, but he also couldn't set him free. So what they did was they would just move him around in secret so that nobody would know where he was. And they finally left him at Pontefract Castle in the care of Sir Thomas Swinford, who was the son of Catherine Swinford from her first marriage. And he was a staunch Lancastrian. So he's like, you know what, Henry, you can trust me. Stick him here in my castle and I will make sure nobody gets to him. But unfortunately, there's still plenty of people willing to mount a rebellion in Richard's name. So even though nobody was really happy with Richard, once he wasn't king, everybody was like, wait a minute. You took the crown from him. That's not right. We got to restore him to the throne. So there were assassination attempts against Henry and his sons. The Scots had an impersonator that they would trot out from time to time claiming to be Richard. So everybody would be like, oh, he's in Scotland, free. We just have to get him back into the country, and then we can restore him to the throne. So unfortunately, there's only one solution here, is they have to kill him. And the way that they did that is they starved him to death. Right. Yeah. Officially, he starved himself because he was so despondent at his situation that he didn't want to live anymore, so he refused to eat. I think we all know it's more likely they just didn't feed him. Mm-hmm. And so then when he did die, Henry had his body displayed to discourage more plots, but he was dogged for the rest of his reign by rumors of Richard's comeback. So it came like, honestly, a little bit of like a cult-like figure where everybody was like, oh, he's secretly, it's like Elvis, he's secretly alive and living mm-hmm. in Yorkshire, let's go get him. Um, and... Henry's reign was never that great. He and the other houses never really got along. They didn't like the way he took the crown. They resented his treatment of the Earl of March, who was Edmund Mortimer, who should have taken the throne, even though he was only seven years old. And the York, Mortimer, Clarence branch, their claim remains dormant for some time, but as we will see, not forever. You know, this is so fascinating because... It really just shows like the short-sightedness of like this power grab, right? Because, and also how stupid he was. Like everybody else was like, all right, we don't like this, but we'll, we'll kind of let it fly because Richard is terrible. But then it's like, he's like rubbing salt in the wound and like really taking it too far by trying to like warp the succession in this way. I think he just played it completely wrong. Yeah, like it's like it's like his PR campaign undercut everything it, because yeah. he's like, oh, no, 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 this is legitimate. But then it's like by le- delegitimizing everyone who came before him, he also I mean, the the inability to like go back two generations is like astounding to me because he undercut his own claim by trying to undercut everybody else's. And then it was like kind of like he was hoping nobody would notice. I think what happened was he should have just played the part of like reluctant savior yeah. But I think what happened was the fact that he had four sons and he he didn't want 
to sit on the throne and have to give it back. I think he wanted to establish his house as the dynasty moving forward. And the only way to do that was to make this ridiculous claim that he was somehow the most obvious, legitimate option. And everyone's kind of looking at him like, but you're not. I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't know what he was thinking. I think it's just kind of like that desperation of like once you hold it, once you get power, you're desperate to hold on to it and you do crazy things to keep it. And, you know, I don't think like I mean, honestly, I, this is terrible to say, but he would have been better off pretending to be a reluctant savior and then killing a seven year old boy. That's or plenty of them have being, done that. I mean, also being a reluctant savior I mean, wait it out. Like, real, like statistically speaking, yeah. the seven-year-old's not going to live to adulthood and then like, and see what happens. Edmund but- Mortimer didn't have any kids of his own. Partly that was because they did, I didn't mention this, but they, they did kind of, they didn't necessarily kidnap him, but they did uh, sort of sequester him and sort of keep him out of public So life. how did the Mortimer claim continue? His sister. Oh, okay. His sister. But then they've already, that's not a problem mm-hmm. because you've already said mm-hmm. that women can't pass it on. So you've like, put, you've yeah. snuffed out that candle like you're done. There like, were better ways to do it. Yeah. Certainly. It's, it's But still, Team York. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's crazy. I mean, people like talk about, you know, when you think about the Wars of the Roses and everybody's like, they overthrew the rightful king. And it's like, it's like actually, if you go up a couple it's generations, like payback they for generations. It first. Like, yeah. they overthrew. And also, it's so funny how that ties in with the Tudors, too, because, like, they did have somewhat of a legitimate claim. So, yeah, like, through so the Beauforts. I, but again, that's through the female line. So no, it's but, still no, questionable. It's, it's through the male line. It's through John of Gaunt. So... Down no, to Henry but Tudor. No, it was Margaret Beaufort yes. was. But again, remember, Henry's. England has never specifically barred descent through the female line. So that was what was so crazy about him claiming that. And the thing is, is that his Beaufort siblings, by all accounts, they got along, but he, Henry, declared through letters patent that they were not in the line of succession. And an act of parliament had previously legitimized them. And an act of parliament never removed them from the line of succession. So that was very important when Henry Tudor took the throne. And also, if his claim that he's trying to make goes back to Henry III, if we remember, I believe I'm doing my math correctly, Henry III only became king through his mother, Matilda. No, that's Henry II. Thank you. Okay, I did my math wrong. All right. No, wait, Henry, yes, yes, okay. But Henry III descended from Henry II through a woman. No, it's completely bonkers. It's completely bonkers. (laughs) He's claiming that his his throne is legitimate because of his mother, but then he's turning around and saying that the Mortimer's claim is illegitimate because it's coming through a woman. It doesn't make any sense. (sighs) Okay, well, I'm not expecting to be any less confused once we jump into the Wars of the Roses. But this was really helpful. I think you're absolutely right that the Wars of the Roses make no sense unless you go back a couple generations because you do have this confusion over legitimacy and the rightful heirs. And you do have like three sides fighting for one throne. And it's it's all kind of crazy, like, you know, an accident of history who actually turns out to be the victor. I mean, you know, this is the cliche, right? History is written by the victors, but it's true. Um, 
And in this case, the victor happens to be the House of Lancaster rewriting succession and history, and it's going to take the other side biding their time to rewrite it back. Um, and then you have the third side rewriting it in a totally different way, So, which will eventually give us Henry VIII and the Tudors. God, I love history. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. That's it, we, I think we described it in one point as like a ping pong match and it really is it's like oh it is. no it's Lancaster and then we'll see a little bit you know next time we'll talk about Henry the sixth and we'll see the York claim rising and then yeah. after that, you know it's just back and forth back and forth and and also it's just so funny because it's like we're seeing in the same story the danger of having no children or too few children or too many the other danger of too many yeah Yeah, exactly yeah the sweet spot would be like two kids incredibly healthy yeah (laughs) or have like three or four but like you know have some spares and then statistically this time only a couple are going to live to adulthood but like five grown sons is a bit of a problem yeah so yeah well I can't wait to get into the rest of this but I think we should wrap it up because my goodness, we've gone a long time. Yes, we have. So, but hey, that's what we do when we first come back. It's been a while. We've got to catch up with the modern history and the the stuff as well. So, um, so next time, I believe we will be jumping right into the Wars of the Roses. Is that right? Yes, we'll be doing Henry the Sixth, who is right. the grandson of the Henry we just talked about. Yes, and there okay. is a movie coming out called The King. Which I, I think th- it's already out. I think is based on Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Maybe. Yeah. We're going to skip Henry V. We might talk about him a little bit, but um, Henry V kind of helped legitimize the House of Lancaster because he was he, he was, was a, a good, good king. king. But um, unfortunately, he made the fatal mistake of dying with a baby on the throne. So... It doesn't. They gotta it stop doing yeah. that. I'm telling really you, it's like well. amazing. I want somebody to write an alternate history of like what would happen if we had antibiotics. <laughs> like, seriously, seriously. Yeah, um, so much would have been like okay yeah. <laughs> if we just knew science back then. So, so until then, we will uh, continue to monitor this gossip situation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, until next time. Yeah, and maybe if you want to fill in the blanks. Go watch uh, Timothy Chalamet and Robert Pattinson in The King, right? Yes. So. yes. <laughs> All right. Until then. All right, talk to you next time. Bye. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.